the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion? And, and is the church missing the boat here? Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey, that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that fought right. World War II, right. and, and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These yep. young people today don't care about anything, and yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about 
protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, do good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if we if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself. I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it, that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah. Is it okay if I tell you a short story Please. about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And uh, 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. Uh, And Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected And it's like you said, we think that young people need the church, and the church needs young people. And when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. 
This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about, and we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches. Although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace, as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books, and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a date that would live in infamy, as President Roosevelt called it, when the Japanese suddenly and deliberately attacked Pearl Harbor and the Pacific Fleet of the U.S. Navy stationed in Hawaii. Over 2,403 Americans died that day. Another 1,200 were wounded. The first time Japan heard back from us was on April 18th of 1942, when Jimmy Doolittle led a raid over Tokyo. The United States Navy aircraft carrier Hornet steams westward across the Pacific. Packed on the afterdeck of the Hornet are 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers. Never before have these huge planes been launched from a carrier. High explosive and demolition bombs are made ready for the destruction of military objectives in Japan. The last time Japan heard from us was on the morning of August 14th, 1945. Exactly three years, three months, 28 days after the Doolittle Raid, and nine days after the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Captain Jerry Yellen and his crew took off from Iwo Jima on a bombing run bound for Tokyo that morning. By the time Captain Yellen returned, his wingman, First Lieutenant Philip Schomburg, would be dead, and the war would officially be over. Captain Yellen's life and experiences are detailed inside the pages of a new book called The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. And Captain Yellen, it is an honor and privilege to have you join us today, sir. Well, it was an honor to serve my country with 16 million other young men. And uh, we had a war of viciousness against America, and we jumped to the fore and fought that war, all 16 million of us. It wasn't just one or, one or two people. I lived in Newark, New Jersey. I was working at Crucible Steel, a night shift. I got up on Sunday morning, December 7th, and went to the 
for the newspaper, went to the corner store to get a newspaper, and I heard about Pearl Harbor. And I made up my mind at that moment, even though I was only 17 years old, that I was going to fly fighter planes against the Japanese who, who attacked my country. So you were 17 when Pearl Harbor happened. When did you then enlist in uh, the U.S. military? I went to the Armory as soon as I could after December 7th and got the papers, uh, filled them out, and presented them to my parents on my 18th birthday, February 15th, 1942. They signed them reluctantly, and I took the exams to become an aviation cadet, was inducted into the Army as a, an aviation cadet in waiting in August of 1942, and I graduated from flying school with 10 hours in a P-40 in August 1943. So by August of 43, you were ready for combat duty. Where was your first assignment? We, there were 28 of us, the last 28 in the alphabet, from Luke Field, class of 43H, sent to Hawaii to join the 78th Fighter Squadron to get more time in the P-40 and then to begin um, island hopping to Anawita, Kwajalein, and Tarawa. But they kept four of us in the squadron to fly island defense with the 78th Fighter Squadron. And I didn't get in a combat until March 7, 1945, when the Marines had enough land on Iwo Jima to protect the airplanes at the base of Mount Sarabachi on a dirt airstrip. So by 1945, uh, fully nearly three years after the start of America's involvement or entrance into World War II, you were finally beginning to see combat. What was that experience like? You certainly had spent a lot of time training both stateside and, and Hawaii and eventually overseas, but when you finally flew your very first combat mission, what was that feeling like? Well, there was a feeling of apprehension that I had. I was in a leadership position, position as an element leader in a flight, and I was wondering before the flight, would I live up, live up to what I had to do? Could I do this combat? This was an eight-hour mission, round trip from Iwo Jima to Japan, and it was an unknown for me. Uh, and, and I was very apprehensive about it, of, of whether I could pull it off and do it. Uh, but we did. I did it 19 times, uh, seven hours and 55 minutes to eight hours and 10 minutes in a P-51. It was uh, a difficult mission. We had uh, maybe 30 or 40 minutes of target time, and the rest of it was flying over the ocean to and from Japan in a small airplane on the wing of the B-29. Uh, it was very difficult times. And maybe you can describe for listeners, because uh, other than those who have military experience, when they think about flying in airplanes, they have an image in their mind of perhaps a smaller vision of a, uh, a smaller version of a jumbo 747 that's uh, air conditioned and cooled and uh, controlled cabin pressure and lots of creature comforts. Uh, but your experience in a P-51 was anything but that, wasn't it? Well, you can go in a bomber, or you can get up and get something to eat, have a cup of coffee, or go to the bathroom. Uh, you can walk around a bomber those days. 
but you certainly couldn't walk around a P-51. You were strapped into a very small seat, and there were no automatic pilots. Your hand flew the airplane. You had to aim the gun, fly the airplane so that the ball was in the center, and be very careful about what you did because you had to fly up the tail of an airplane or come in very close. Today, they have auto everything, um, even flying the airplane and you know, be 20, 30 miles away, pick up a pip on the on your screen and fire a missile. You never have to see the enemy. So we were the last of the hands-on fighter pilot pilots who flew uh, piston airplanes, uh, engine airplanes. And then they got out in, in 45 or 46. We got the P-80, the first jet, and it's made a lot of progress to the planes that fly today. F-16s, uh, 22s, 35s, um, different. I went from never being up in an airplane to soloing in February of 1943 to being a fighter pilot in August of 1943. It took six months. And today, maybe it takes three years to do the same thing. And in those experiences while you were flying, not only did you have to pay close attention to the other aircraft around you, you also had to be concerned from anti-aircraft flak from the 8mm AK-AK guns. And really the only thing that was protecting you from all of that was plexiglass and very thin aluminum between you and the bullets and the flak. Not quite true. We had a protective armament behind us. And we had self-sealing gas tanks, and it was, uh, uh, you know, we weren't flamers. We, we didn't burn the same way as the Japanese airplanes, which didn't have armament and didn't have self-sealing gas tanks. So if you hit them with a bullet, they exploded and caught on fire. We didn't quite go through that. We had protection. So you enjoyed a, a little level, additional layer of protection then than even those guys that were flying the B-17s that, that literally had nothing. I, I don't ha- understand to this day how you could fly a formation in formation with the B-17s, 24s, and then the 29s, the B-29s over Japan. They had 10, 11, 12 people in the airplane, and they were all courageous and dedicated to doing what they had to do to protect our country and to win the war. They did it. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with Captain Jerry Yellen. He is the last fighter pilot who, in fact, flew the final mission over Japan. He left on the morning of August 14, 1945, bound for Tokyo. By the time he returned, the war was over. A look at the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Our conversation with Captain Jerry Yellen continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold. 
That was the announcement, of course, by President Truman of the initial atomic bomb attack over Hiroshima in early August of 1945. We're visiting today with Captain Jerry Yellen. He is indeed the last fighter pilot. That is the title, by the way, of a new book regarding his life story, recently released by Regnery Press. Captain Yellen, in fact, flew that final mission over Japan in August of 1945, August the 14th to be precise. When you took off that day from Iwo Jima, Jerry, bound for Tokyo, for you, was it just another day, just another bombing run? Well, we, we didn't have bombs. We were up on fighter sweeps at, uh, at that time. And it was not just another day. Uh, we were told on the 13th that we would hear the code word Utah, the Japanese would surrender, we'd abort the mission and come back. That didn't happen. We never heard the code word. And we scraped airfields in Japan. My wingman, Phil Schlomberg, said to me on the 13th that if he went on a mission, he wasn't coming back. Um, I tried to get him off the mission, but he wouldn't have any part of that. And when we were through strafing, we needed, we needed 90 gallons of fuel to get back to Iwo Jima, so someone in the squadron called 90 gallons. And Phil was on my wing. I gave him a thumbs up. He gave me a thumbs up. And I led my flight into some weather, and when I came out of the weather in the clear skies, he was gone. Phil was gone. There was no vision, no visible, no radio contact. He was just gone. And when we landed on Iwo Jima, we found out that when we started to scrape, the war had been over for three hours. So it was a pretty tough mission for me. Was it even surprising to you men that the war was continuing on? I mean, I would imagine while all of the buildup certainly to the development of the atomic bomb was done in absolute secrecy, by the time the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, I think the assumption largely was that that would have ended the war, and of course it did not. The Japanese continued to fight, refused to surrender. We subsequently, three days later, dropped a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, and it took some time even after that for the Japanese and the emperor to finally unconditionally surrender, which, of course, had been the terms of the Potsdam Agreement from the very get-go. Was it a surprise to you guys flying and continuing to run uh, to do um, missions over Japan that they were continuing to hold out and continuing to refuse to surrender as late as the 14th of, of August? Well, we thought the war was over. All of us thought we wouldn't have to fly another mission. We wouldn't lose any, anybody else. After the war... It was discovered that the army, Japanese army, was would would have killed the emperor. They tried to get the recording that he made. They wanted to continue the fight. The army. Fortunately, they didn't do that. And fortunately, we didn't invade Japan. We would have had a million casualties. A million people died. I've had people, Japanese people, come up to me who are now in, their, now in their 80s and thank me for their lives when they were 10, 11 years old years and years ago. They were told how to make bombs to strap on their bodies, Molotov cocktails, gasoline, and they were ready to kill for their emperor, kill us. And that didn't happen. It's a very fortunate thing. Today, 
we have a weapon, a nuclear weapon, the smallest nuclear weapon in America is a thousand times bigger than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There are, I guess, two surprising things for uh, young people today regarding World War II. One was what you just referred to, Captain Yellen, and that was the Japanese steadfast insistence, particularly among ranking members of the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Army, to continue the fight even long after the bombs had been dropped August 6th on Hiroshima and August 9th in Nagasaki. The other thing that is not often talked about was the degree of Japanese barbarism particularly against Americans, as we began to retake many of the islands uh, that they can take in control of, uh, folks perhaps not fully aware that it wasn't just Pearl Harbor that the Japanese bombed. They attacked the Marshall Islands, Wake Island, they attacked Guam, they attacked uh, Hong Kong, they attacked the Philippine Islands, and pretty much for a, a good portion of 1942 and 43 uh, controlled almost the totality of that region of the Pacific. Um, what were some of the stories, Jerry, that you heard regarding some of the Japanese treatment of American prisoners of war? And I'm thinking specifically of what you and your uh, co-author Dan Brown write about in The Last Fighter Pilot concerning the treatment that was experienced on the island of uh, Chichijima. We we knew uh, a bit about the horrific treatment of people by the Japanese from the reports that came back from China, Manchuria, um, and those parts of the world where they invaded, I think, Manchuria in 1931, 32, somewhere in there, 1936, China. And we knew about those things, and uh, we experienced them, that the Bataan Death March in the Philippines, uh, the treatment of the people. They felt that they were superior to everybody else in the world, the Japanese then. Fortunately, the wisdom, not of what what, what uh, Tom Brokaw calls the greatest generation, but the wisdom of the commanders of the American forces, uh, Admiral Nimitz and Admiral Kane and and General Arnold and General MacArthur, who all went to West Point in Annapolis, um, took us to rebuild the three countries that we fought against, Germany, Japan, and Italy. Uh, and they today are our staunchest allies. And the two countries we fought with as allies in World War II, Russia and China, seemingly are the enemies of the world. So in my lifetime, my enemy became my family. I have three Japanese grandchildren. And my friends from Russia and China became seemingly the enemies of America and other portions of the world. Uh, amazing how the political spectrum can uh, pivot on a dime the way it has, as you suggest, in, in just your lifetime. Jerry, certainly this was a harrowing experience for any young man to face. Um, I think to put this in perspective, um, for young people today to realize that there were young men and women who were barely graduated from high school at the age of 18, who then immediately went off into the military, received their combat training, and then went immediately off into either the European theater to fight against the Italian and Germans in Europe or the Pacific Theater fighting against the Japanese, and that many of the young men who fought 
died and ultimately won the war for the Allies were men that in some cases were as young as 18, 19 years old. Many of your, I guess, older peers might be the oldest of other than than leadership leadership personnel. Many of your comrades were Jerry what in their their early to mid twenties. Well, the youngest guy that I knew that was killed, the sixteen guys that I flew with, was Phil Schlumberg. He was nineteen, and the oldest was Bill Sutherland, our CEO, and he was twenty six. So these were young guys who were pilots. But, you know, there are three professions that put uniforms on. The military put a uniform on. The policemen put a uniform on. The firemen put a uniform on. And when you do that, you commit your life to other people in the line of duty. And the pure purpose of war, the pure purpose of war, is to kill your enemy. And we all became killers. And most of us we're trained, thou shalt not kill. That's what the Ten Commandments are about, one of them. And we learn to kill. And then the after effect of that, when you do that, when you go into combat, the after effect is horrific. I don't know anybody who spoke about their wartime experiences. I had 11 or 12 first cousins, second cousins who served in the military and I never had once had a conversation with them about the war. My sister's husband was an MP on Normandy Beach on D-Day. And I never spoke to him about what he did. He never spoke to me about it. He asked me what I did. When you learn how to kill, it's there forever. And it doesn't go away. So the after effect of war affects families, affects the people who did it who did the fighting, because we, as human beings, are all exactly the same. There's no difference between any culture or uh, any belief. We're all human beings together. We have evil in the world today, and ISIS, what they believe in, strongly enough, willing to kill other people for what they believe, and that's the height of evil. And we went through that as a nation um, and, and from 1941 on. Our visit today with Captain Jerry Yellen, the last fighter pilot. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit with Captain Yellen right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. Arrangements are now being made for the formal signing of the surrender terms at the earliest possible moment. There, of course, was then-President Truman announcing the Japanese surrender and acceptance of the unconditional surrender terms of the Potsdam Declaration. That happened in August of 1945. We are visiting with the last fighter pilot, Captain Jerry Yellen, who on the morning of August 14th of 1945 took off from Iwo Jima on what would ultimately become the last raid over Japan. Captain Yellen, just before the break, we were talking about the after effects of having served in war. Today, they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. During World War II and the First World War, it was referred to as shell-shocked. 
Why is it that you think that so many of your colleagues came back from that war and didn't want to talk about it? And why are you being open about your own experiences now, today? Well, people can't talk about what they did because they learned how to kill. They learned how to use a weapon to kill other people. And that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. You put a uniform on and you see another uniform, that uniform's the enemy. And you're both committed to kill each other. We did that. The the Marines do hand-to-hand combat. The infantry does hand-to-hand combat. Up front, up close, see the blood, smell the smell of dying bodies. And you lose bodies, you lose your friends, and you keep going on. When the war ends, it never goes away from your head. It just does not go away. Today, uh, Iraqi and Afghanistan veterans commit suicide at a rate of 22, 25 a day from the stress of war. Uh, they drink and they beat up the women and they do horrific things and they have no control of what they do. It's just uh, that's their outlet for stress. Fortunately for me, 30 years after the war, in 1975, I learned transcendental meditation, GM, and got my life back, or I would have committed suicide. I thought about it enough, <clears throat> figured out ways to do it. Didn't do it because I had a family of four sons, but I thought about it an awful lot. I'd stand by a window and say, jump. And, you know, didn't, just didn't do it. I, uh, 22, 25 a day today, uh, do commit suicide. And maybe that's what we know. Maybe there are more. I don't know. But there are ways to relieve the stress of war. One of them is transcendental meditation, which has uh, been in my life for 42 years, since 1975. Jerry, you made a return visit to Iwo Jima in March of 2015. What was the purpose of that trip, and what was the experience like returning for the first time after all those years? Well, it was an amazing adventure for me to go there, um, to see the island. As I know it, there wasn't a blade of grass. There were armament all over the island. There were a thousand ships ringing the island. And when you go there today, it's overgrown with grass and trees. It's quiet. You see some of the Japanese and, um, and guns that are there and some of the caves that are there and you meet with Japanese people who's uh, one or two have been on Iwo Jima a lot of the relatives have been there uh, you meet Mr. Shindo who is a member of the Japanese Diet who is the grandson of General Kobayashi he's a neat guy Shindo-san and he's a friend yeah, you know, Jap- Japanese people come to there on a, a, a reunion of honor it's the only battle that's ever been fought, where the two combatants sit down and meet together and honor each other's dead. I think there's still 10 or 11,000 Japanese bodies on Iwo Jima that have never been found of the 22,000 who were killed. And it's a shrine. It's literally a shrine. It's open one day a year. I said in 2015, I'm not going back to Japan again. I'm 91 years old then, and it's too much of a trip. So my Japanese granddaughter, Sarah, who's now 21, 
said she would like to go back in 2016, and I went back. I went there this past March uh, with Sarah, and I'm going back again if I'm here in March of 2018. I'll continue to go back with my Japanese granddaughter. She wants to write. She wants the knowledge about what her two grandfathers felt about each other. And uh, that's sort of what I'm doing. It's a reunion of honor. It's a reunion of, of time passing through and people getting to see other people, their enemies, as people, as friends. It's a beautiful experience. On the return trips, what yes. thoughts go through your mind, Captain Yellen, when you think of First Lieutenant Philip Schomburg, who eventually became the last official combat casualty of World War II? I think of the 16 guys that were killed in the 70 days Polish And uh, I feel fortunate that I have a life, and I feel very sad that the 16 guys did not have a life. They never went beyond the military, 1945. Um, so it's a difficult time. It's a tearful time. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. To be on an island where you went through so much, but it's an honor to be there representing the 16 million of us that served uh, as men and women in the military and the 8 million young women who were Rosie the Riveters who served our country. That's 24 million people serving our nation uh, with 150 million people population. We were dedicated to bringing peace to the world, and I'm honored to be a part of that group that did that, all of it. Yours, Captain Yellen, of course, has been often referred to as the greatest generation, the generation that survived the ravages of the stock market crash and the Great Depression, and then ultimately World War II. As you think back on your experiences at this stage in your life, Captain Yellen, what kind of advice, what kind of legacy would you like to leave for future generations whose life experiences growing up in America today are so vastly different than yours of the 1930s and 40s? Well, I was born in 1924 and 1929, five years later, the Depression House hit America in 1929. And I can tell you that our lives in the country were all about you. We made sure that everybody, I needed food, I got it. I needed places to sleep, I got that. Our life was all about you. Seemingly today, especially among the young people, life is only about me. So my recommendation is do something good for someone else every day. It's something that I learned in 1936 when I read a book by Lloyd Douglas, a minister called a magnificent obsession about a doctor who did good things for people all of his life. And that's a mantra for me, to keep doing what I think is right and, and, and don't talk about the things that you do. Just do something nice for another human being every day. Even if it's your mother, your brother, your father, just go out of your way to do something good for someone else. 
It's been a look at the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Captain Jerry Yellen. Captain Yellen, again, we appreciate not only your time and uh, your willingness to talk to us, but most importantly, sir, we appreciate very much your service to our country. It was an honor to serve. I would do it again under the same circumstances. And it's an honor of pleasure to be on your show. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.